From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. And I'm Brooke Gladstone. If you're listening to the show on your radio, odds are you reside in the United States, population 312 million. And odds are increasing you live in another country as well, population 845 million, soon to reach a billion. Which makes it the third largest country on the planet after China and India. That's Rebecca McKinnon. In her book, Consent of the Network, she labels this burgeoning world power Facebookistan. Facebookistan, it's run by a sovereign who believes himself to be benevolent. She means Mark Zuckerberg, who founded it in 2004. But we're not going to spend much time on history. Maybe you saw the movie The Social Network? This is what drives life in college. Are you having sex or aren't you? It's why people take certain classes and sit where they sit, do what they do, when at some center, you know, that's what the Facebook is going to be about. People are going to log on because after all the cake and watermelon, there's a chance they're actually going to get laid, meet a girl. It portrays Zuckerberg as a lonely nerd whose billion-dollar brainchild was the result of displacement, a compensation for loneliness, our ultimate revenge fantasy. The the reality for people who know me is I've actually been dating the same girl since before I started Facebook, so obviously that's not a part of it. Mark Zuckerberg. They just can't wrap their head around the idea that Someone might build something because they like building things. On Wednesday, Zuckerberg filed for his eagerly awaited initial public offering of stock to raise some 5 to $10 billion. It's the tech world's biggest ever. So we're devoting this hour to this thing that Mark built, this place where people share photos, links, and passions, advocate, organize, network, lurk, confide, sell, and spy. And as they do unto others, so Facebookistan does unto them. But Facebookistan is not compelled to abide by the rules it sets for its citizens. In fact, this could be Facebookistan's national anthem. What's your name? Rebecca McKinnon. Part of Facebook's ideology is that people should be upfront and transparent about who they are. The management team is uh, setting rules. We know them as, as terms of service, but they're a kind of law in this digital realm. A set of rules, for instance, around identity. So Facebook requires that you use your real name when you sign on to an account, if you violate the terms of service, of course, you can get kicked out. We got people through this really big hurdle of wanting to put up their full name, a real picture, mobile phone number in you know, a ton of cases. It's a very paternalistic attitude that's quite similar to what I've experienced uh, in my time in China, which is the government telling people, you know, we know what's best for you, our economy is growing, and Your life is getting better. We decided that these would be the social norms now, and we we just went for it. Facebook, as we heard repeatedly through the Arab Spring, is having an increasingly powerful impact in the physical world, where it's being used by dissidents to organize against autocratic regimes. Y.L. Ghanim, a young Google marketing exec based in Cairo, famously used a Facebook page to mobilize thousands to go into the streets almost exactly a year ago. And before that, says Jillian York of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, there was Tunisia. A number of video sharing sites were blocked, and so people in Tunisia were instead using Facebook's video sharing capabilities to share news and get it out of the country. And same with Syria. 
Facebook was actually unblocked by the Syrian government about February 2011 in an effort to try to surveil activists. But at the same time, Syrians have persevered, have been continued to use Facebook as a news source, despite government efforts to use it to entrap activists. But sometimes Facebook may have put users at risk. At the beginning of Iran's green movement, Facebook encouraged dissidents to form groups on the site. But a sudden classically Facebookian change in the rules in December 2009 led to once private information suddenly becoming public. Names, profile photos, favorite causes, and lists of friends were there for the taking. After an outcry, users won some privacy back. The EFF's Jillian York says that in Egypt, Facebook's rules may have put a whole movement at risk. In November 2010, they took down the famous We Are Al Khalid Said page from Egypt because Wael Khanim was using a pseudonym. You know, someone from an NGO actually intervened. Had that not happened, we may never have seen the Egyptian revolution as we saw it. Facebook says that this policy is because they want to create a culture of trust and real names, but that's a solid example of a case where they're not really thinking beyond U.S. borders. This is a website that began as a way for college kids to, you know, check out the relative hotness of other undergrads. And it has evolved into this vast social sharing site. Do you believe that Mark Zuckerberg and his colleagues have a responsibility to adapt Facebook to accommodate its more life and death applications? You know, whether Facebook likes it or not, and, and my suspicion is that they don't like it so much, they've downplayed it, Facebook has become a haven for activists. It's very well set up for that. It's, it's very easy to attract other people to whatever cause you're trying to promote. And so in that sense, yes, I do think that Facebook has a responsibility to their users. Responsibility, we know from Spider-Man, is the obligation that accompanies great power. And that's where Facebook runs into PR problems, mostly over its use of your personal information. Facebook tends to change its privacy rules abruptly and unilaterally. You may wake up to discover that information you thought you were sharing with friends has become accessible to everybody, and especially advertisers. If there is sufficient outcry, Facebook will retrench and retool with apologies. For instance, initially it was impossible to delete your Facebook profile. After users complained, Facebook adjusted its settings so that now... It's just really hard. More recently, the site has been blasted for tracking users as they browsed outside websites and for holding data on web users who are not even Facebook members. A few users may get the heebie-jeebies, but Clay Shirky, author of Cognitive Surplus, says Facebook has nothing to fear. They have now achieved not just the largest user base in the history of the Internet. They have a majority of their potential user base already on the service. And who is that potential user base? Well, it's everybody who's got an internet connection and doesn't live in China. But there are so many drawbacks, at least I feel them. The interface is a pain. So do you remember the interface for Napster? That thing was a, a, a farrago of bad <laughs> interface design. The, the user interface for Napster was a nightmare. The user experience for Napster was uncompetably better than anything that had ever been offered because Napster gave people access to an underlying resource that they wanted. I could have the best interface in the world for a social network, 
But if it's not sitting on top of a social graph of 700 million people, I get I get nothing. It's designed to take data from you and seems to put obstacles, even as they proclaim the opposite, to controlling your data effectively. I find it an unpleasant environment. Isn't there, at least in some quarters, a rising cry of, people like me? <laughs> there is a rising cry of people like me. And, and essentially what's happened is that the hipsters and eggheads who always <laughs> hate popular things now hate Facebook. I've been using the network 20 years now. I remember when we believed wrongly in the 1990s that because the internet was spreading, the population would become more geeky. We had to be geeks to understand how the thing worked in order to be able to use it. What we didn't understand is there is no such thing as a mass geek population, that in fact what's happened as the internet has spread is that it's just become easy enough to use that nobody has to have any idea how it works. So while there are people who dislike the interface, there are people who dislike the data lock-in, there are people who dislike the privacy ramifications, that group has become such a tiny subset of the user base that not only could Facebook lose all of us and, and, and barely break its stride, it might actually make their lives easier if we all left. <laughs> so when you say people like me, you are including yourself in this group of criers. Ab- absolutely. <laughs> I, I have the same concern. My, my friend Neil Dash wrote a wonderful piece called Facebook is Gaslighting the Web, in which Facebook is just getting people used to the idea that there's a higher and higher degree of either control or observation around data that ordinary people might be willing to show anybody. And that change has been taking place over years. Facebook is propagating the notion that we don't care and therefore eventually we just won't care? Right. With continual revisions to their privacy policy, continual revisions to what material is presumptively exposed or hidden, they've been changing the environment to alter our assumptions from it's my data, I put it up someplace, people can see it or not see it based on controls I set, to the idea that the Facebook defaults and the Facebook login become the new normal for most of the internet-using population. We decided that these would be the social norms now, and we, we just went for it. Just went for it. Just went for it. Just went for it. Can't the market fix this? Why can't you just go elsewhere? Shirky says, go ahead, launch a competing service. He guarantees no one will join. We are moving towards a world where Facebook is almost undisciplinable by the market. If Facebook has no competition, then the only regulatory bodies we can imagine are the world's governments. So now the right to privacy legislation in Europe is moving along. It may be that the thing that keeps Facebook from going all the way in the direction of simply strip mining its users' personal data is the regulatory environment, like the phone company. As my friend Dana Boyd said, Facebook is a utility, meaning it's become essentially something you have to have in your life simply to get along, but utilities get regulated. Clay Shirky, author of Cognitive Surplus. He'll be the first to tell you that Zuckerberg's realm, despite its problems, is a mighty enticing place. Coming up this hour, we're going to explore Facebook a stan. We'll try to figure out how much it's worth in dollars every time you click the like button. We'll hear from a woman who was friended by her rapist and the marketing exec who launched Egypt's revolution using the site. We'll talk to a guy who legally compelled Facebook to give him every piece of information it had on him. And he got it, all 1,222 pages. 
and will prognosticate about what, if anything, might come after the age of Facebook. This is On the Media. Because my mom's on Facebook, destroying all my privacy. My mom's on Facebook, and she won't stop poking me. My life was rated R, and now it's PG. Before I make a post, wonder what she think of me. On the Media is supported by Reputation.com, with tools designed to help lawyers, doctors, and business professionals protect and improve their online reputations. More about controlling online reputations at Reputation.com. This is NPR. Oh, I just got a cow on Farmville. This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield with more on the controversial life and times of Facebook, where, let's face it, a certain hypocrisy has ruled. On the one hand, its business model is built on getting to know you, all about you. On the other hand, it hasn't shared much about itself. That is, until Wednesday, when Facebook's IPO forced it to open the books for the very first time. Also last week, Europe pressured the website to let in a little sunshine. Europe has long been more sensitive about invasions of privacy than the United States and has often served as a bellwether for what global companies can or can't get away with elsewhere. To find out what the future might hold for us in the United States, we asked Chris Worth, a London-based reporter for Marketplace, to track down a couple of the characters involved with the sweeping changes in European privacy laws, laws that will certainly change how Facebook does business over there. First, let me take you to Austria to meet Max Schrems. Hey, nice to meet you. He's a law student at the University of Vienna. He's carrying a towering stack of papers that he tosses down on his living room table. That's like a pile. The pile is a printout of all the data Facebook has collected on him, or at least all the data Facebook has given him. Under European law, companies like Facebook are required to hand over every scrap of information they collect on a person whenever they ask for it. My first shock was how much information there was there. And, and I didn't expect it to be like 1,200 pages because I'm not a heavy Facebook user. I'm posting something like once a week. Schrems believes he's the first person to get Facebook to hand over all the personal data it collects. Some of the information, he says, was the normal stuff you'd expect to find. Profile photos, status updates. But a lot of the information is also like data that Facebook is gathering in the background that not the user is putting in, but um, Facebook is generating somehow. For example, Schrems scrolls down through an electronic file of the data to a list that reveals the exact location of the computer he last logged on from. So you see latitude, longitude, altitude, blah, 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 and that's exactly, if you type it into Google, it's, it's my university in the U.S. And he found old posts and other entries he claims he deleted years ago. Like, I poked someone in 2008, it's still there today. None of it may sound like anything to get too worried about. After all, the bargain we all strike with social networking sites is that we get to share information with our friends for free, and the sites use that information to target us with ads. But under European law, companies like Facebook are required to get a person's consent before they collect any data, and they're supposed to delete the information when someone clicks delete. But they don't. And very likely there's way, way more. Like, for example, I didn't get anything about the videos I put online. Or there's nothing about the like button that's all over the web where just visiting the page, Facebook can track that I was there. Um, Kind of all the information that creeps people out was not in the data set. So Schrems started a campaign called Europe versus Facebook. It filed formal complaints against the company in Ireland, where Facebook's European subsidiary is based. Ireland's Data Protection Commissioner, Billy Hawks, says Schrems has performed a valuable public service. 
he established for people the amount of information, in fact, that Facebook is gathering about them. And I think one uh, useful outcome is that people have a clearer idea of what Facebook is doing with data. Hawks completed an audit of Facebook last month with close cooperation from the company. He says the report confirms Facebook hadn't deleted information it should have. And he says the company needs to be more transparent about the data it collects. But he says the audit also dispels certain myths about what the company gets up to. Specifically, Schrems claims that not only is Facebook amassing reams of data about its members, he says it's also keeping tabs on non-members through so-called shadow profiles. Hawks explains. The idea of a shadow profile is that if you visit a site, for example, uh, that has a Facebook-like button on it, uh, that Facebook knows this. And the idea was that Facebook, if you weren't a member of Facebook, uh, was gathering information on your likes, even though you weren't a member. Hawks says his investigation proved that Facebook does collect data on non-members, but he claims the company doesn't use the information to profile them. Furthermore, we got clear commitments from Facebook uh, to delete uh, this data more rapidly than it was already doing. And that's not all. Hawks also convinced Facebook to change its policy on how it uses facial recognition to identify people in photos. It's a feature called Tag Suggest that generates a unique data set on a user's face. Today, when a member in Europe logs on to Facebook, they're presented with an opportunity to opt out of Tag Suggest. You're told three times you have this option, and if you ignore it, well, then you're opted in. Since Max Schrems publicized his mountain of data, Facebook has received 40,000 requests for personal information. Facebook didn't respond to multiple invitations for an interview for this story, but Hawk says the company will create an automated system for retrieving the personal data it holds. And even though our audit was carried out under European law, we understand that they will roll out the implementation worldwide, which is obviously something very positive. So you can download your own data, even if you're in Pittsburgh instead of Paris. But Schrem says not to expect Facebook to give you everything. For On the Media, I'm Christopher Wirth. Chris is here to answer a couple of more questions. Hey, Chris. Hey, thanks, Bob. Good to be here. So does Facebook have to open up the vaults for all those 40,000 Europeans who pulled a Schrems? When Facebook responded to Schrems, it was the first time that it had responded to such a request. So it just went and created a PDF of all of Schrems' material and handed it over to Schrems on a disk. What Facebook does now when it gets a request is it sends you a nice, polite email saying that it's dealing with your request. And if you'd like to do so, you can go to its website and download all the material that it collects on you. But when you do that you're only going to get all of the material that you would see anyway on your Facebook profile. It's essentially, for the moment, stopped putting as much material out there as it gave Shrems. There were some new regulations proposed at the end of last month in Europe. What are they? They essentially boil down to two ideas. The first, online companies like Facebook, they need to be more transparent about the data that they collect. They need to tell users what they're collecting and what they're using it for. And second, users under these new rules, they're going to be able to have a lot more control over their own data. It's this idea of the right to be forgotten. So, you know, take that teenager who today may be posting potentially damaging or compromising photos. When that person's a little older, the proposed law says they should be able to go to Facebook and make that compromising photo disappear. Chris, thanks so much. Hey, thanks, Bob. Good to be here. Christopher Wirth is a London-based reporter for Marketplace. At the top of the hour, we heard Rebecca McKinnon, an expert both on the Internet and the Far East, 
liken Facebookistan to China. Right now, Facebook is blocked in China, but that hasn't prevented Facebook-like social media from servicing. They've been made possible in part because of the protective anonymity of the Internet. Recently, though, the Chinese government has taken Zuckerbergian steps to force users to register, making themselves known, if not to everyone, then at least to the government. Jeremy Goldcorn monitors Chinese media on his website, donway.com. He says Facebook and Twitter were blocked in China because of two tumultuous episodes in 2009. One was the demonstrations in Iran. People were talking about the demonstrations as being Facebook demonstrations, and that spooked the Chinese government. And shortly after that, there was unrest in Xinjiang, in far western China, between the Uyghur ethnic group and Han Chinese. The Chinese government shut down the internet completely in, in the province of Xinjiang for about six months. And after that, everybody observing locally felt that there was no chance of Facebook and Twitter and YouTube being restored ever again. But at the time, there were fledgling domestic social media websites, and I guess they have vastly expanded. What are they? Well, there are a few. The ones that most resemble Facebook are RenRen.com and Kaisin, which means happy net. Renren started out very, very similar to Facebook. It was popular initially in schools, and in fact, it used to be called a different name, which meant on campus. And that's still the biggest Facebook-like website, with, I think, more than 100 million users. The other one is Kaisin, which is notable for having first popularized the farming game before it was even popular in the West. Kaisin is a knockoff of Facebook, but Farmville which brings so much revenue into Facebook, is a knockoff of the game created by Kaisin's parent company. You know, this is one of the rare examples of the West completely ripping off a Chinese idea. Meanwhile, there's a third big player. That's right. One can't ignore Weibo, often called the Twitter of China, but is in fact quite a lot more complicated than Twitter, and enables very easy photo sharing, video sharing, threaded comments, games, groups, and is looking a lot more like Facebook than Twitter at the moment. So if Facebook was blocked because it was a threat to the regime and to the Communist Party, what about these other sites? Domestic or not, they could stir up some trouble too. They are a channel for political discussion, and particularly Weibo, but also the other two, are websites where people communicate about a vast variety of topics, many of them quite threatening to the government, and the government is constantly monitoring them. In order to stay operating, they have to censor themselves. So all of them have vast teams of monitors who follow what's going on on the websites and in real time will delete stuff that they think will get them into trouble. But a lot of stuff that young Chinese people never used to know about, they now know about because their friends are reposting little tidbits of news. So the government is doing their damnedest to slow this down. And I don't believe this is going to cause a revolution anytime soon. But it does mean that information is passing around more easily than it used to. Jeremy, once again, thank you very much. Thank you for having me, Bob. Jeremy Goldcorn is editor of Donway.com, a website that follows Chinese media. There it sits on a Facebook fan page or on some third-party site like the Huffington Post, adjacent to some content you've just consumed. 
It's a blue thumb sticking out like a hitchhiker's in the cold. It's the like button. You're in a hurry, but what the hell? You slow down and click it. Ninety-three percent of Facebook users like it like that at least once a month. Here's what happens next: If you've liked something within Facebook itself, you send a thumbs up back to your friend on her page. If the button was embedded next to content outside of Facebook, you've just shared the item with your friends, near friends, family, and vague business acquaintances on your own wall and possibly their news feeds. And if you've liked something posted by a brand, such as Coca-Cola, you may be hearing from Coke with more opportunities to, as they say in the social media marketing racket, engage. Jason Kincaid writes for the website TechCrunch. Many people may not realize when you hit that like button next to a, a brand's icon, whether you're browsing the web or if you're viewing their Facebook page, you're basically saying like, "Hey, send me stuff." If we were to put a post out there to ask a simple question as to if you were to share a Coke today with someone famous, who would it be? Michael Donnelly is director of worldwide interactive marketing for Coca-Cola. We might get upwards of twenty thousand pieces of engagement to a simple post like that. And generally, 90% of them are within the first few minutes, or at least within the first hour. 20,000 seems huge until you remember that Coca-Cola has been liked, or before the like button, fanned, 38 million times, which is not just a fan club, it's Poland. But why do we like? The first reason has to do with what psychologists call self-presentation. It's why smokers choose Marlboro over Kent or Why you read People magazine in the bathroom and the New York Review of Books on the subway—it's a means of projecting yourself as you wish to be understood. The second reason for liking, says Sam Gosling, a professor of psychology at the University of Texas, is simply that it's well friendly. It's equivalent to you know when a group of people meet and they start cooing to each other. Oh, I like your shoes. Oh, yeah, your hair's so nice. Now you've cut your fringe. Simple friendliness, he says, is actually beyond simplicity. It is literally primitive, as in primates. What they are doing when they're grooming each other is they're you know picking the fleas or whatever out of one another's coats, and they're doing it in a public way where we are connected and others can see we are connected and we are friends, right? And all those public acts of friendship, the grooming and the sharing and the compromising photo tagging, are largely why Facebook is now worth an estimated one hundred billion bucks. The liked content keeps users on the site longer for advertisers to reach them. And produces scads of details about you for better targeting of ads. The like button is so important, in fact, that it has been studied like the Dead Sea Scrolls. A recent white paper from an Indianapolis consultancy called Tellingly Exact Target found that users under 34 are far more likely to like a brand. That 58% of people who do like brands are hoping to be rewarded with discounts or freebies. And only 42% of active Facebookers believe that liking a brand constitutes actually being a fan. Oddly, what Exact Target hasn't been able to target exactly is what dollar amount a like is worth to a marketer compared to, say, the cost of advertising. 
All anyone knows is... There's a valuable type of like and there's a less valuable type of like. That's K.D. Payne, a New Hampshire research and marketing consultant who spends her days and nights imagining measurement standards comparable to the Nielsen TV ratings that worked so well in the mass media good old days. Engagement may be the goal, but you can't count it. I'm part of five committees, I think, trying to set standards for social media measurement. And all of those standards stuff are being driven by the need on the part of the advertisers to put real numbers around this thing called social media, this thing called like. This priceless, in every sense, thing called like. Complicating calculations is a Facebook algorithm called EdgeRank, which sorts through all your incoming from your cousin, your best friend, that guy, what's his name, who used to work in accounting, and the Coca-Cola company. EdgeRank weighs your closeness to the source, the nature of what's being shared, and how long ago it was posted. And whatever makes it through EdgeRank's filter winds up in your newsfeed. Everything else does not. So, if Coke posts something that EdgeRank ranks lower than a lot of people's cousins' bridal shower photos, says TechCrunch's Jason Kincaid, then the users simply won't see it in their newsfeed at all. And so it's almost as if Coke doesn't have that fan in the first place. Yeah, don't lose any sleep fretting over Coke's visibility. The population of virtual Poland keeps very busy posting Coke photos and Coke stories and Coke videos, such as this one reenacting a pilgrimage to Coca-Cola's Atlanta headquarters from the fans who started the Coke Facebook page back in 2008. Welcome to Coca-Cola. Marketing exec Michael Donnelly. Something that astonishes me every day is the great length that people go to to create things that are somehow relevant or very centric to this brand. And why? Because they really like Coke. And they really, really like liking. Because liking isn't just innate in the primal flea-picking sense. It's like liking with a lowercase l. What's not to like? (laughs) This baby likes watching her big sister. She's the daughter of an Israeli couple, Lior and Vardit Adler. In honor of their favorite Facebook function, they named their daughter Like. Like Coming up, on Facebook, people are used to telling their stories incrementally. But that's not how we do it in real life. If I go down to uh, the bodega and I get a Diet Coke and on the way back somebody gets shot, I don't come to you and go, Brooke, I got a Diet Coke and somebody got shot. I tell you, oh my God, you won't believe what happened. This is On The Media. On the Media is supported by Reputation.com, with tools designed to help lawyers, doctors, and business professionals protect and improve their online reputations. More about controlling online reputations at Reputation.com. Support for On the Media also comes from Constant Contact, offering email marketing and social media resources for marketing small businesses. Learn more at ConstantContact.com. The John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. More information at macfound.org. The Wallace Foundation, a source of ideas for improving education and enrichment for children, both in and out of school, at wallacefoundation.org. 
This is NPR. This is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. And I'm Brooke Gladstone. As popular as Facebook is, it has its share of detractors, especially among public intellectuals. Former New York Times editor Bill Keller accused it of, quote, displacing real rapport and real conversation. Novelist Jonathan Franzen said platforms like Facebook are, quote, great allies and enablers of narcissism, that to friend a person is merely to include that person in our private hall of flattering mirrors. All this angst for a website that lets you share cute photos of your dog with your friends. Where's this agitation coming from? Is it fair? Writer Paul Ford published an essay last year that tries to answer that question. Paul, welcome to On the Media. Thank you for having me. You wrote the essay about Facebook's fight against something you call the epiphanator. That's right. (laughs) So the epiphanator is the great clanking machine that sits in particular in New York City and especially in Times Square and produces stories. It's the media industry. And what the epiphanator does is manufacture epiphanies. And the the point there is that when you read a story in a magazine or, or listen to the radio, there tends to be an ending. By checking in on Facebook or Twitter on a moment-by-moment basis, you start to have this experience of an unfolding sort of never-ending stream of experience. It doesn't have an end. It doesn't conclude. But don't we even think of our own lives in terms of stories? Isn't that an inevitable framework for no matter how much data we happen to encounter or collect? Well, and I think when you look at Facebook, you can actually see that they're trying to deal with this, but they're trying to deal with it in the way that database nerds would always deal with it, which is the timeline. Look, you made 79 friends in 2010. Good for you. But that's not really how it works. If I go down to uh, the bodega and I get a Diet Coke and on the way back somebody gets shot, I don't come to you and go, Brooke, I got a Diet Coke. And somebody got shot. I tell you, oh my God, you won't believe what happened. And I compress that story. And so that's where it's weird. However, hundreds of millions of people are now starting to get their stories in these streams. And they, they're not so worried about an end or a beginning. What they want is to just have that experience and to swim in it. What's interesting is that people like Bill Keller, who you mentioned, and Zadie Smith, people like that, really do see that as a terrible loss. Maybe we need to distinguish between people who use Facebook and people who write for a living, like uh, Zadie Smith, you mentioned, who said that when a human being becomes a set of data on a website like Facebook, he or she is reduced. Our denuded network selves don't look more free. They just look more owned. What she's not seeing is that Facebook, in a way, is a kind of machine. Like all the data points, the denuded data, they don't function Unless the machine is turned on and people are connected to it and they are communicating and sending status messages. And if you go back and look at old pages and old updates and old likes, it's kind of, eh, it's all about that moment. What do you make of Jonathan Franzen's complaint that it isn't just a waste of time, but that it actively obscures a true picture of the world because people are distracted and blinded, as he says, by their own narcissism? There is an obvious immediate truth to that. There's too much signal. It's too hard to figure out what's actually going on. But when I think about some of the interactions I've had on Facebook 
with friends who have been going through extremely serious, almost sort of friends and novel level personal distress. People who have been trying to recover from cancer, people who have lost children, and watching them use Facebook to broadcast where they are at that moment so that everyone doesn't call them up and say, how are you doing today? Being a friend of these people, I get to watch how they reconstruct their lives. And it's, it's far more painful as a sort of narrative experience than anything I've ever read in a book. And so I'm very, very cautious to disparage that. These critics expect us all to use information in the same way, but people who are chronicling the moment of their lives are not engaged in creating stories, filtering information, making one thing more important than another. They're using this information toward a different end. No, that's exactly right. It, it provides a different experience for them, and it, it still has meaning. It's still valid. Hundreds of millions of people are really happy to have that Facebook experience, and I think an awful lot of them are also still very happy to have the experience of reading the novel. I don't necessarily see that there's this tremendous split between people who would use one and, and the other. Facebook is now on the verge of enlisting a billion users. It according to many, will be the platform on which we communicate for years to come. A lot of people worry about the fact that Facebook encourages its users to fit themselves into a frame, whether it's what 1950s cocktail they would be or, or which beetle or what movie star they look like or any number of pre-cut frames and then we start thinking of ourselves in those terms, and we tailor ourselves according to these sorts of things. I think on the web we create ourselves by the forms that we fill out. And Facebook has created those forms so that people return over and over and create a social territory that can be very easily shared with many, many advertisers. We construct ourselves in a way that ultimately can be packaged and resold. And so if the people like Sadie Smith or Jonathan Franzen have a point, it's that we should be very suspicious of the motives of the company that would have us do that. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Paul Ford wrote, Facebook and the Epiphanator, an end to endings for nymag.com. So he says Facebook offers a means to help manage the horrors that life throws your way, but it can also potentially throw you into the path of even more horror. Emily McCombs is the managing editor for the website exojane.com. She recently received a friend request from a man who had raped her in her adolescence. She says that even though the event happened a long time ago, seeing that man's name on Facebook quickly brought her back. In that moment, I was that 14-year-old girl, he was a monster, and he was terrifying to me. So you messaged him to ask him if he would talk to you. I did. One of the hardest things for me to process was just believing that this had happened. That's not uncommon with rape survivors to sort of blame yourself, right. that you've done something to cause this to happen. I literally didn't believe myself. I mean, I did intellectually, but I couldn't sort of emotionally accept that something so horrible had happened to me. And uh, it was worsened by the fact that I had blacked out large parts of it, which is also something that happens when there's a large trauma. 
a lot of it was fuzzy. There were pieces missing, which made the whole thing seem a little bit surreal, a little bit like a dream. I wanted to talk to him because I wanted someone to verify for me, this is real. You're not crazy. Right. And he wasn't willing to have a message conversation about right. it. You think maybe because he didn't want anything on the record, but right. he was willing to talk to you on the phone. First of all, like when he said he wanted to talk on the phone, that was paralyzing. <laughs> like that was, you know, the idea I had mustered up all this energy to email him and ask him these questions. And then he wants to talk on the phone, which is like a whole different thing. I was really scared to get on the phone with them. So you took notes on the conversation, and, and as you write, it began with you asking him, I just want to know if this really happened, because sometimes it feels like I'm going crazy. Right. Um, and he said, okay, I remember. You're not going insane. You're not delusional. It happened. I was there. I remember. And I said, thank you. And then he said, I don't know how much you want to hear. I said, it's okay. Just tell me whatever you remember. And he said, you must have just turned about 14. It was like 1997. We were in this warehouse. And I said, I can't believe we were really in a warehouse. That was one of the things that I could never explain because I pictured a warehouse, but I thought, why would we have been in a warehouse? He said it was a warehouse. And then other details. Some of it had to do with restraints and right. and, and really mean behavior. Which I remembered a lot of it, but I, I mean, like the warehouse thing, that was, that was so moving to me because that was one thing that I could never make sense of. And then to have him verify that, I think it was hard for me to speak. And this guy was part of that. He was part of it, but honestly, I was so grateful to him. When he said that first thing, when he said, I remember it happened, you're not crazy, I, I immediately started sobbing. Why did he send you a friend request? You know, I think that he was honestly in such complete denial about what had happened that he thought that he was just sending a friend request to any other friend. I mean, he remembers all these things happening, but in his memory, it was all consensual. His explanation is, when they led you over to me in a dog collar and handcuffs, I thought that you were into it. I think that's just how he rationalized it. There are moments when I'm speaking to him where it's obvious that he knows there's a little more to it. Like the fact that he recalls you saying no repeatedly? Well, that he said that without really any inclination that that might mean that something wasn't consensual. You know, he says like, oh, but then it seemed fine after you said no. But there, there are times when he said, oh, I've wondered about you over the years. And when I heard that you weren't doing so well, I wondered if maybe I was responsible, you know, which doesn't make sense unless he on some level realizes that he did something to me. When you got his message, part of your reaction was that, oh, this is one of those horrible Facebook effects. People showing up in your life, <laughs> the last people you might ever want to talk to. You said that you've been friended by the dude who threw your glasses over the fence in elementary school, <laughs> a friend of your mother's who knows weird stuff about you and leaves comments on random photos and estranged relatives, and, and then this guy. In the end, do you feel grateful to Facebook or, or resentful? You know, I actually am very grateful. It's funny because it sounds like the most extreme example of the person that you wouldn't want to friend you on Facebook. But um, speaking with him really allowed me to process some things that had happened and, and move on. I mean, I'm obviously still dealing with it. It doesn't ever go away. But 
um, once he said to me that it had happened, I was able to get past that place of just doubting myself and blaming myself and move on to just processing what had actually happened. He has kids. He has two daughters and a son, which I was able to see on his, his Facebook account. And so I just the last thing that I said to him was to, you know, to teach your daughters how to value themselves so they don't end up in that same situation, which, of course, they might. I mean, having good self-esteem and loving yourself obviously doesn't protect you from being raped. But um, and teach your son that at the first sign of no, stop. I don't care what you may think about why she's saying no or what you may think she really means or how she's saying it. If you hear the word no, stop. I still think it's really weird that he contacted you. I mean, maybe he was looking for some kind of absolution. I mean, he apologized. He was sorry. You know, although he never admitted, yes, I I raped you, he apologized for what happened. He was genuinely sorry. You know, and this is also a, a young guy when this happened. He's not a monster. I mean, that was the other lesson in this was like, this is just a guy on Facebook. You know what I mean? This is just a guy who listens to Bob Marley and likes scrubs. He's not some monster. He's a person who did a bad thing. And it's not too late for him to accept responsibility for that and apologize. And you know what? I can accept that. Emily, thank you very much. Thank you. Emily McCombs is the managing editor for exojane.com. It's easy to forget that Facebook has only been around for eight years and only available to non-college students for six. In that time, Facebook's grown from a college dorm room project to a multi-billion dollar company and made its 27-year-old founder the fourth richest person in the United States. But Facebook's life represents an eternity in Internet years where entities live, dominate, and die at historic rates. Surely then, Facebook must one day die, right? I dragged Clay Shirky back to ponder the question of Facebook's inevitable demise. It's hard to guess how long Facebook will be around. I mean, everything ends at some point. But I don't think that there's any foreseeable future in which Facebook goes away or even becomes significantly smaller or less important than it currently is. Okay, so lay out how Facebook is different from, say, Friendster or MySpace. Well, so do you remember that moment in the 1990s when it was possible to imagine that mobile phones were kind of a fancy luxury that you might have, but your main phone was your house phone, like you had something tied to the wall? Absolutely. MySpace and Friendster were sort of like that era of mobile phones, where it might be fun to be part of a social network, but really it wasn't the main thing you were doing on the internet. The important stuff about the internet was, I had the search engine, we had this email, and then we've got these social networks over here, and they're kind of fluff. So now, fast forward 10 years, and mobile phones become something that's gone from being a luxury that you might have to being a utility you have to have. So the big difference between the Friendster and MySpace era and the Facebook era is that social networking, like mobile phones, has gone from something that's seen as a kind of sideline to something that if you don't have it, you're now actively at a disadvantage in large parts of society. Isn't there, as Tim Wu suggests, a kind of law of social networking entropy 
that would eventually eat away at Facebook's dominance? Sure, but the Holy Roman Empire failed too. I mean, are we talking 2020 here or are we talking 2050? Start from now and project into something like the foreseeable future. Make a list of their advantages. Enormous user base, incredible economies of scale, world-class infrastructure. The, the marketing department is their own user base. Advertisers are tripping over themselves to get involved. No one wants to call themselves a competitor. Now make a list of their disadvantages, right? Uh, a handful of privacy nuts are cranky. Can, can you think of a second thing to add to that list? I can't. Okay, it's 2050. Facebook <laughs> suffered a cataclysmic epidemic. Right, and we're all, we're all living off the grid. And, <laughs> you you know. look back, what's its legacy? There will never now not be a period where most human beings on the planet are connected to the same grid. I think that's the really big change, right? There was a kind of a theoretical way in which that was true of the telephone network, which in terms of underlying technological connection got there first. But Facebook is the first tool to ever have a majority of the adults in the connected world using the same service. And this, this is new, right? As late as 2008, it was possible to imagine that different countries would have different leading social networks. Spain had Photolog, Brazil had Orkut, the UK had Bebo, and so on. Four years later, that's all gone. It's clear that the only thing that keeps Facebook out of a country is if the government invests a very great deal of money to specifically block Facebook. I have a hard time imagining a world in which we don't always have a service like that, even if in 2050 it is not Facebook. Clay, thank you so much. Thank you, Brooke. Great to talk to you, as always. Clay Shirky, author of Cognitive Surplus. Oh, and by the way, Facebook declined our requests for an interview. As Mark Zuckerberg told Wired, it's really easy to have a nice philosophy about openness, but moving the world in that direction is a different thing. Hey, Shari, you've been talking about me. I know that you love me. Meet me on Facebook. Give me your email address so I can add you as a friend. Then we can start chat. You can show me That's it for this week's show. On the Media was produced by Jamie York, Alex Goldman, PJ Vogt, Sarah Abdurrahman, and Chris Neary, with more help from Lina Anwar and Hannah Sheehan, and edited by Brooke. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson, our engineer this week, was Dylan Keith. Katya Rogers is our senior producer. Ellen Horn is WNYC's senior director of national programs. Bassist composer Ben Allison wrote our theme. On the Media is produced by WNYC and distributed by NPR. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield. Support for On the Media comes from the Ford Foundation, the Jane Marcher Foundation, the Overbrook Foundation, and the listeners of WNYC Radio. This is NPR. On Notes from America, we have conversations with people across the country about how we can truly become the nation that we claim to be. Each week, we talk about race, our politics, education, relationships, usually all of them, because everything's connected. And you, our listeners, are at the center of those conversations. I'm Kai Wright. Join me on Notes from America, wherever you get your podcasts.